Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, a series in which we take a deep dive into the Dungeon Master's Guides written for the previous editions of our favorite game. We aim to discuss what worked, what didn't work, what got pulled into future editions, and what got left by the side of the road. And on the fifth day of the 12 Days of Edition Wars, my GM gave to me five gold rings. Protection, uh, ram, uh, telekinesis, uh, fire resistance. Yeah, something like that. Anyway. Uh, Wait, there's only four. There's a fifth one. Five golden rings. Yeah, just well, feed me a fifth one, dude. I'm, I'm struggling here. A ring of featherfall. Ring of featherfall. Thank you. <laughs> so this is chapter 11, Encounters. Um, and I mean, what you really have here is, um, some of the most sort of pure instructional, here's how to make a functional thing, um, kind of, kind of text in the whole book. Like here, they're actually teaching you how to make an adventure in like on the page even more than mm-hmm. in your mind and your players' minds. Um, and, you know, there's there's a lot of... I've talked so much about how the examples of characters and sort of their iconics... They didn't call them iconics in the second edition, but their mm-hmm. iconics, uh, like, stuck in my imagination. There's a bunch of that here um, with uh, Rupert and Algorand and mm-hmm. Terrace Bloodheart, and mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, they do a lot of things in these encounters that I sort of thought D and D was supposed to do, but we don't actually ever do as a as a thing. So, like uh, the reason I like this encounter, uh, this chapter is yep. the, at least this this first part is that it literally says, "Here's what an encounter is." Here is how to plan one. Yeah. Yeah. And then here's some tips on what to think about when you're planning this because, uh, you know, and, and hey, here's random encounters. And here are some characteristics of random encounters. And do you use a table? And here's what to think about when you're using a table. And what effects will this have? And um, it's, it's very pure. Let me teach you how to do this. And that's something that even in fifth edition, we don't necessarily get a lot of. Um, I, uh, I can't help but uh, – so last night, you and I were on an episode where we reviewed Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Um, and one of the things that I said in that episode was, you know, the book kind of assumes that the DM who's reading it already is going to know just instinctively how to implement everything that's in it. And that's something that this DMG for second edition doesn't assume in this chapter, at least. And I really appreciate that. It's actually teaching you how to do it. Yeah. Um, as much as anything, though, I think it's interesting that it does focus on the the creator side rather than the, okay, so you've bought an adventure. How do you implement this side? 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so and that's where the that's where the that it the onus then in that case is on the adventure you bought to teach you how to run it, yeah. which is also something we talked about last night for sure. Uh, and and so, but that's not the responsibility of this DMG. At least that's not what they thought was the responsibility of this DMG. Otherwise, it would be in there, but it's not. Yeah, it's clearly not where um, where Zeb Cook's head is when he's right. when he's writing this and. I mean, I respect that. It's it's the one that doesn't sort of enrich TSR as much, but it is better for the reader. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is more purely beneficial instructional text, and right. you can't hate that. Um, and, and after it tells you how to make an encounter or how to structure an encounter, it, te- it tells you how to DM an encounter. I mean, it's it. I, this chapter is 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 really good. Uh, it has flaws, like anything. Well, sure. Um, it it doesn't have. Uh, it's not perfect. You know, uh, no chapter in this book or any DMG is perfect, as far as I'm concerned. But you know, it even goes so far as to, you know, at the end, it 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 has a section on well, here's how to fix this in play. Like, you know, is the encounter too hard? Uh, did the encounter have too large of a treasure reward? Uh, was the encounter too easy? Like, and granted, they don't spend too much, you know, they don't spill too much ink on that, but at least they're acknowledging that it happens. For sure. For sure. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a, a really good chapter of um, some of the most purely practical advice that, that they have to give, mm-hmm. sort of from one experienced GM who still had to learn it rather than invent it because Zeb isn't Gary or, or, mm-hmm. or Dave Arneson. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. Um, right. So, so he had to learn it rather than invent it himself, but um, there's a lot of good solid content here for um, thinking about what all of it would mean um, and how it would come together. Like I, I like the distinction between keys and triggers. Um, mm-hmm. Because it does sort of indicate an awareness that not every adventure is going to be a dungeon crawl, which right. was already not the case in first edition. Mm-hmm. And, and you can tell because of what some of the topics are. But at the same time, um, there's such a focus on sort of the dungeons where you go extract money that. Right, right. That's really getting that's the to, source. It's the source of your resources, so we have to spend a great deal of time right. and energy telling you how to adjudicate that sort of adventuring. Right, um, but I think triggers are really solid for you know event-driven adventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's mm-hmm. that's good stuff. Um, a discussion of random encounter tables—that's you know something we're still discussing today um, mm-hmm. you know, on the regular. Right. Right. Well, and here is a section of this book that could probably be applied to a fifth edition product I just purchased, which is the Wilderness Kit. Yep. Um, there is an entire section on the frequency and chances of having a wilderness encounter mm-hmm. based on the type of terrain and what time of day it is. Now, I'm not saying fifth edition should put that in there, okay? But I'm just saying there's a lot to think about when you're thinking about a wilderness encounter. It talks about when to make a wilderness check. It talks about the frequency, the encounter size, 
you know, uh, how far away it should start, you know, is the party surprised or not, you know, and those are exactly the types of things that the DM needs to know. It's very procedural. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, but sprinkled throughout this, this entire chapter are little snippets of, um, you know, here's how to h- implement this, right? Perhaps an area of a nearby forest is regularly patrolled by the night's wardens who drive off the greater threats for the safety of the population. Lone monsters often escape their notice. Sometimes they raid the outlying farms. Special encounter tables can be created to reflect the lower levels of monsters that do manage to lurk in these woods, providing low-level characters with a decent but not overpowering challenge. It's telling you how to implement the information that it just gave you. And it's perfect. Yeah. Yep. There's uh, there's good stuff here. Um, I, I, I remember as... Uh, as a kid, I just sort of bounced off of the the, the two to twenty table that mm-hmm. this suggests, <laughs> and yeah. I didn't run enough serious dungeons to mm-hmm. ever engage with the uh, the dungeon level thing here. Talk about mm-hmm. uh, table fifty five. Um, so a lot of this, I sort of I sort of read it and had in my head that I was supposed to absorb it and internalize it and apply it. And then didn't do that. And I mean, I don't know. I, I can't quite put myself back in my head at the time enough to explain why I didn't put more energy into uh, bringing this you know, into my game, but I just didn't. Um, well, I mean, so the thing is that this this particular table that you're talking about, it's almost a holdover from first edition, right? Remember, for sure. in first edition, there was this really elaborate structure around how much experience points, how many experience points do you get uh, for a creature? And and the, the typical way to set up a dungeon was the first level of the dungeon has creatures that are, for the most part, not always, but for the most part, um, appropriate for a level one party. And so if a level one character is in the dungeon at level one, when they vanquish that monster or help vanquish that monster, uh, they're going to get full XP. But if they're level two and they vanquish a creature that's typically found on level one and the creature is low enough level to be uh, a mediocre challenge for level one characters, that level two character doesn't get as much experience, right? Yeah. Um, for that creature. And, and uh, it, also the reverse is true. If a level two character ends up on the fourth level of the dungeon, maybe they fell through a pit or down an accidental slide um, or went through a one-way door that, that, that forced them to go down a set of stairs eventually, and they find themselves on the fourth level. Now they're fighting creatures that are kind of above their pay grade, but they're getting an extra amount of XP for it because they are fighting above their pay grade. Um, and so that kind of rigid structure is sitting right here in this table. Yeah. But the thing is that in second edition, they, they also changed the way that experience is awarded a little bit, not a huge, enormous amount, but a, a, enough. And so um, it's not quite as structured, 
but it's a little bit structured. And if you're coming from first edition and trying to translate things, or if you just like the look of a, of a second edition module and you want to grab it and use it in your first edition game, this type of table is really good for you to use. But I could totally see why you wouldn't necessarily incorporate it into your thought process of planning a game because you're not a super duper dungeon focused kind of dm yeah like i always wanted to be the kind of dm that would like really get to that intense engagement with the mega dungeon and i'm not mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just not um yeah and that's uh, it's okay um you know i i used to be um yeah, and, I, you've definitely talked about it before, and I find it really yeah. like even now I find it really exciting to listen to mm-hmm. stories about a mega dungeon done well. Um, right, and and one that's done well is is it's like Chef's Kiss. It's 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 excellent. Right. I mean, and, and my wife but, has run a mega dungeon that I've really mm-hmm. enjoyed playing, mm-hmm. but. Um, yeah. The, well, her and I were on the uh, the Tome Show episode where we reviewed the Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Yeah, and we kind of schooled Jeff and and you know whoever else was on that episode about well, here's why this is an adventure, <laughs> and here's why this this mega dungeon is structured this way, and here's why it meets the criteria for both of those things: a mega dungeon and an adventure. And that's an important um, duty th- for the Tome Show's general manager. That's right. Yes, yes. Yes, I was promoted last night. Folks, I'm now the general manager. General manager. This is how you can tell when we recorded this episode. (laughs) That's all right. Whatever. Um, But you know what I mean? So, you know, I I am a big, I love the Mega Dungeon. But the thing is that it's very far removed from the state of the game now. I'm totally going off on a tangent, but that's okay. We knew this was going to happen, right? Um, it's, It's completely removed from kind of the way that that the game works nowadays and, and the, the ethos that most players come in with is adventure and intrigue and parlaying and, you know, talking to the King and becoming the heroes of the town and, 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 and a thousand other different types of stories. Those aren't the only ones, of course, but um, most of them don't, uh, most of them use kind of the, the five by five dungeon, right? Like five rooms, that's your dungeon. That's not a mega dungeon. That's a basic dungeon. It's not very big. You can get through that level in, in probably one session and leave and go back to town and you, you obtain something or some knowledge. And then the, you know, then you spend some time doing other things. Yeah. Um, you don't have a mega dungeon campaign in general, the way that, that it used to be expected that you would have it, or at least the word on the street was it's expected you have it in basic and first edition. Um, and b- because the sort of ethos has changed, you really have to get players who really want that, who who, who really buy into that, because it's hard to run fifth edition in a mega dungeon. Um, uh, so you So you either have to run... It's not impossible, but but uh, the way that the ethos is set up around skill systems in third, fourth, and fifth edition, it's harder to run a mega dungeon in the na- in the way that I f- and this is totally a me preference thing in the way that I think that it's supposed to be run to make it what it's supposed to be. Hmm. The experience that it's supposed to give is very difficult in fifth edition. So if you don't have buy-in, you're not going to get that experience. Interesting. 
We should do a whole separate but episode on this anyway, sometime. Just yeah, I'd, we I'd like probably to, should. Like work through it in a lot of detail with you, but um, yeah. maybe outside scope. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally outside the scope. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, so I, I do really like uh, as the the section gets on into wilderness encounter tables and special mm-hmm. encounter tables again because it um, like tosses out a lot of imagined game and world mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. that isn't intended to like be your actual setting. There's not the faintest pretense in the text that you're actually going to play in the setting that. Uh, is sort of casually getting name dropped or that it is any setting at all. It's Mm -hmm. just uh, like my placeholder name is actually sounds pretty cool. It's sort of the sense of it. Um, Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And then we get into DMing encounters, which is a really nice thing to include again. Like Mm -hmm. this is practical. This is ruthlessly practical and I love it. Um, Mm -hmm. The frequency and chance of, in, of wilderness encounters. I hate this table for existing. <laughs> well, that's the one that I mentioned earlier, right? Yeah, just, um, just getting into like um, your your twenty four hour you know encounter cycle in, broken up into three hour chunks, and right. your encounter chance at each of the, oh no. Well, see, let me tell you why I, I, I find this, um, this table kind of quaint, and I actually enjoy this table. The reason is because this is exactly the impetus to the idea of, well, you should be running your characters, your party, through this many encounters per adventuring day, which is something that we get in 4th and 5th edition is, well, you know, everybody should be going through a certain number of encounters per day. That way you can ensure that you have used their resources and stressed them out and they can take a short rest in between, you know, after the second encounter. And that's how the game is supposed to be played and that's how it's made and blah, blah, blah. This is the beginning of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, one of the uh, career-long problems of my games of D&D is just... Uh, in any edition where they expect at least X many encounters in a day, and that number is substantially larger than one, uh, <laughs> right? I'm going to have a lot of days where that isn't what works out because mm-hmm. I'm much more following the flow of what the players decide to do. There would be a lot of sort of faffing around in a town that mm-hmm. is still like there's still story happening. And there's still combats happening, but right. there's not um, three to eight encounters mm-hmm. with uh, short rests conveniently interspersed. Uh, and so I will I will posit that the problem there is the definition of encounter mm-hmm. and uh, how we expect encounters to use resources. Well, right. I mean, right? there aren't there are ways to spend resources on uh, social and exploration encounters, but they don't mm-hmm. tend to be as sort of uh, resource hungry as uh, a big burly brawl. Right. And that's exactly what I mean. So, you know, you might play a game where, and, and so also recognize this type of thing comes from a game where you're, you can have a combat in five minutes or 10 minutes, literally at the table. So I if you do five of those, we're doing that, that, Hmm. 
I mean, so not all of them were not not all of the encounters were that quick. But if you had a, a random encounter with five goblins in the forest, sure. if it took you more than five or ten minutes in in first edition AD and D, something else was going on. Yeah, you use the initiative system. That's what happened. Well, <laughs> okay, we've moved on from first edition. We <laughs> don't ever bring that up again. <laughs> well. I mean, the, the, that's my point, though, right? Like, I know what you're in, saying. In second yeah. edition, if you're rolling initiative again every round, like that's dragging it out a lot. Yeah. Um, but you know, but that, so like castles and crusades, uh, you roll initiative every every turn, and it as long as everybody's keeping up and paying attention, it doesn't slow things down. But it doesn't have all the kits and fancy effects and all that stuff that second edition ends up having. Um, because uh, Castles and Crusades has pulls a lot of things from Second Edition, and one of those things is uh, that roll initiative every round, and in in some cases you have to declare your action depending on what you're doing. So it kind of pulls things from basic and second. Uh, but anyway, I'm, we're off on a tangent again. My point with this with this table is, I I like this table because it provides a guidance for an expected set of frequencies, right? Is it far too detailed because it's in six-hour blocks? Hell yes. Is it a little too prescriptive? Hell yes. But if you didn't know at all how to do any of this, this might actually give you some insight into why a certain adventure module was written a certain way. Or you might think to yourself, hey, I just ran that adventure module and it wasn't like this at all. And that's either going to have, it's either going to make you think, so this is a guideline and I can write something or run a game how I want. Or, wow, I wonder if this will be better than that module that I just ran, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, And like, in all seriousness, my issue with this table is I am not going to remember to go to page 101 in the DMG and <laughs> just keep rolling on this one table based on the hour all day. I, I just won't. Um, yeah. And that's fine. Um, it's not actually a problem. It doesn't. It, it honestly didn't earn the time we gave it, but that's okay. Uh, well, I think I think it did because I think it, I think it really is something that it does. It does have a lot of effects that bleed into other editions, where we talk specifically about how many encounters per day. Yeah, and and those things have an effect. I mean, look, a fourth edition had had a huge issue with with that because the encounters took so long. You couldn't have a game session where you had four or five encounters if you were above first or second level. Because it just took too damn long. So how do you then track the adventuring day and the resources and all that stuff? It it changes the way that the game interacts with the players. And this is this is very it's very specifically saying here's what should happen in this particular environment. Sure. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, what I do like is that it is uh you know pressure to think about the the terrain of your overland travel and not a direct line route right mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. 
above and beyond while you're going to move slower in the swamp. Um, you're right. also getting four times as many encounters in the swamp as you mm-hmm. are um, in the plains. Right. And in the swamp, it happens in at, at any time of day, whereas, you know, uh, in the Arctic regions, it's only happening between 3 and 10 p.m. And uh, all the other times, you're not getting anything. Oh, so it's oh. a it's a semblance of let me world build and tell you in what environment the animals and creatures will be active. Yeah, that that's that's not that's not bad. Then we get surprise rules, which are especially messy in uh, in second, as a <laughs> lot of monsters have an idiosyncratic surprise mechanic of mm-hmm. like only surprised on or you know, surprises on die values. And you can figure out how surprise resistance or being good at surprise uh, balance each other out, but I don't know that it's made especially explicit. Yeah, I mean, you know, surprise is one of those tricky things where I feel like most of the time it should be obvious whether the party's surprised or whether the creatures are surprised or whether no one's surprised or whether both people are surprised. Yeah. Um. And so surprise mechanics always kind of make me chuckle because the majority of the time the DM should just be the one should just be able to say, well, because you were making noise walking down the hall, of course, the ogre behind the door hid and was not making noise. And so you did not hear them. And now you are surprised when you open the door. And that's definitely the, uh, the five E take. And I think it's Mm -hmm. the four E take as well. And I have no actual problem with that. Um, I do kind of understand wanting to hang it more squarely on dice, but I'm, I, I get there by thinking about um, special creature abilities in games like Arkham Horror, where mm-hmm. some of the horrible monsters that you come across, and they're supposed to be genuinely horrific, and try to like give you that a little thrill of dread and awfulness in mm-hmm. the course of a you know fairly sterile board game uh, right. so they have to think about how they're going to achieve that well, they get there by you know this creature surprises you and you take damage before even starting the encounter right well in a game like right. Arkham Horror that's brutal and that's great uh, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. glad they achieve that Yeah, and I, and I mean, I'm not anti-surprise mechanics. I don't. I think there are times when it should come down to a die roll. Sure. Um, but it's I just, think that now we'd hang it on a stealth versus perception roll, and those are hard to do well because you mm-hmm. get so many. Well, if there are five PCs rolling, someone's going to roll well. That's just numbers. Right. right. Yeah. And um, which also speaks to why the the DM would roll one D six yeah. behind the the screen. Yeah, for right. sure. Uh, it's, it's why the, the DM would roll something in secret and it's why um, assassins are a tough subclass to play because right. establishing surprises the player is hard. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So in, in any case, I mean, the, the, these surprise modifiers and, and whatnot, they're not bad. No, it's fine. Uh, it's it's um, fine. It, it's just, this is very, very much a DM screen kind of table. Mm-hmm. You're going to need it often. Right. You're not going to want to open to one or three to get it. And 
that's that's right. the story. It'll be uh, right there, it, right under the freak, right under the frequency and chance of wilderness encounters. Right. Um, yeah. And you know the next big table is encounter reactions, um, which I love. Which which right? That's that's really great if you, as the DM, don't already know what the story of the encounter and what the mindset of the creatures is going to be, right? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, and this, I could say the same thing about this, even though I love this much more than the surprise rules, I'll say the same thing about it. This is also one of those cases where it's perfectly fine for the DM to be able to say, I know exactly what how this creature is going to react. For I sure. don't have to roll sure. because I know that when those two goblins see the goblin boss get struck down, they're going to run away. Yeah. And it, it just makes me think of an encounter in my campaign where um, there, there were these uh, devils who were being perfectly friendly and chill. And the party was like, okay, we can talk to these guys. And then the devils <laughs> like name drop who they're working for. And then suddenly my wife's character is murdering all of the devils in a double quick, <laughs> on the double quick. And it's great because <laughs> it was, it was the wrong name. <laughs> It was it was a, a nice time, um, mm-hmm. a very memorable <laughs> encounter for for both of us. Um, and I assume for the rest of the party. Um, but you you mentioned fixing things in play. Um, yeah, it, it, absolutely great advice. Absolutely great advice um, for just understanding. You know, things are going to go wrong sometimes. You're not going to get the outcome you want, and mm-hmm. um, that's fantastic. Um, the encounter gave away too much treasure is the only one here. I feel a little weird about, um, <laughs> and, and only because even judging what that is, is tough. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, I, but here's the thing though. I appreciate that they brought it up. Oh, for sure. Because I think that especially new DMs might sometimes walk away from a session and think, man, they have way, they got way more from that whatever set of encounters, dungeon level, whatever it is, than I thought. They found all the secret treasure, you know what, like, oh no, you know, like, and, and do I need to talk about this? Think about it, consider it. Um, and, you know, at least it's mentioned as, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. this is what happens. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Know? Especially especially if you're doing random treasure for a random encounter. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, the encounter was too easy. This is a non-problem. Right. It, it, it well, functionally says. Yes. Yes, exactly. But that will bring us to the end of chapter Which, 11. Uh, by the way, yep. I'm also glad that they say that too, right? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, that, that ends chapter so, 11, unless you have more, you yeah. want to say on that. <laughs> no, Which, I like that chapter. Yeah, so. It's, it's, uh, yeah. it's good practical stuff. Um, and chapter 12 is NPCs. Uh, ch- so chapter 12 has one of the pages I've been kind of, uh, referring to in, in our conversation up to this point, um, mm-hmm. as one of my favorites in the book, uh, you have table 60 NPC professions. And this is again, a little bit of a history lesson for Mm -hmm. just, uh, both words that are familiar, but have changed their meaning. So some 
jobs that are familiar that you're just going to know about. You know, uh, nobody doesn't know what a sailor is. Um, you read Purse Maker and you can work it out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, a, a sheather, a shearman, um, is even totally reasonable that, you know, many people, probably including 12-year-old me when I got this book, uh, wouldn't know what a scrivener is. Mm-hmm. Um, or that there's a difference between a furrier and a farrier. Right. Or a difference and a fletcher. Or, or <laughs> yeah. between a gold beater and a goldsmith. Right. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a big table of professions and some of them get defined. Uh, if it isn't defined, you can probably work it out by, uh, pulling apart a compound noun somehow. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But it's, it's really nice stuff for just what kind of people are there in the world? If Mm -hmm. I have not done, you know, um, a one-on-one course on medieval history or social histories in general. Uh, right. Right. And then we get uh, a tiny little bit on hirelings, uh, common and expert. Um, but a lot of that's going to get pushed a little bit later. And we get the big three of uh, special NPCs mm-hmm. that you hire to do stuff for you. And I feel like maybe we gave these a, a a good nod in our episode on the the economy in second edition. Mm-hmm. Yep. But um, assassins, spies, and sages. Um, how to solve problems through financial means is mm-hmm. what we'll collectively call this. We right. have a problem. Our problem needs to uh, die or be learned about in one way or another. Go. Right. Right. Um, I mean, the spy, the spies, and the sage are essentially the difference between someone knows it now and someone knew it once. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or someone is finding out about it right now, and yeah. someone has studied it for a very long time and is part of a group of people who have studied it for a very long time and know all about it. Other than maybe the perhaps details that happened just yesterday. Right. Um. I'm uh, really, I'm just disappointed that when it gets into things that sages need, you know, what does a sage know? Questions should be categorized. Resources required. Sages need time. They don't include sages need a corner office with windows. (laughs) Weird, right, Sam? Look, sages have a tower all to themselves. (laughs) (laughs) So if you find one without a tower, guess what your sage needs? Uh, A really good chair to go in it. (laughs) um yeah so and then soldiers it talks about troop types uh another sort of um lesson on what these people will act you know what's the difference between heavy cavalry and light cavalry or uh, an artillerist and an archer like you know those sorts of things gives a little paragraph for each of these it's kind of nice yeah um i was in love with this section as a kid um because uh, it created a foundation of learning more and asking questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yep. I, I sort of don't even remember how much of my impressionistic understanding of, um, you know, everything before the early modern era, it, ju- it just stems from this. Mm-hmm. Right. 
I, I love the section on employing hirelings who might be offended. Depopulate <laughs> at your yeah. own risk. Right. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's it's true though, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, I also like the finding the right people. You know, it's not just you don't just walk into ta- a tavern and say, "All right, I'm hiring." Well, and you I know. didn't read um, Frank Mincer's, uh text from Beckme for several more years uh, mm-hmm. after I read this, uh, but it does make me think of his tables on. Um, so this is the title you assert. And this is the title of the other person nearby. This is how offended they are, which is a great table for just incredibly (laughs) rare to come up in play insanity. Mm -hmm. And I love it. Right. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. That was wonderful. (laughs) Um, But uh, like finding the right people is um, uh, a bit frustrating to to actually implement just because I need an enormous number of people and I have no labor pool is mm-hmm. a problem that's actually really hard to do anything about as a player. Like establishing any agency in that situation is um is complicated. Right. Uh and a weekly wage uh is all stuff that came up in um our economy episode. But it's mm-hmm. basically, uh, how much money does a standing army hemorrhage? And the answer is, oh, oh could we talk about something else? Right. <laughs> yes. Military yeah. budget overruns? What? Yeah. yeah. Why is that part of my D&D? <laughs> <laughs> and why are they constant? Oh, my God. It's too much like, it's too much like real life. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's true, though. Um, and, but, but the thing is, you know, this is one of those where, and, and this is, this is one of those where they left out all of the stuff about taxes Yeah, that guy. And now you know why Gygax had all of that yeah, for sure. in the first edition DMG, because he was also trying to give away for the King, Baron, Duke, whoever's, whoever's ruling this region to be able to raise this army and pay them. Well, what's he paying them with? Well, with all the taxes that he's collecting, right? Like that's just how it works. Yep. So in here, they skip that part of the conversation and just assume that you will be, you know, you know, look, if you're, if you're raising an army and you can spend, you know, 3000 gold per month, just paying the general part of the army, uh, you know, the, the, the generic kind of part of the army. We're not even talking about super duper expensive ones here. Um, well, then you probably are the Baron already. Yeah. You know, you probably sure. are the fighter fighter with his fortress, right? You are the person that they're looking for. Yep. Um, and I mean, that's for a fighting force of 500. Right. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then you have you know, the various support staff that they require. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. But this, this 500 though, you know, this isn't just 500 peasant farmers with their scythes, yeah. um, you know, and pitchforks and spears coming to help you out. This is, you know, light infantry, heavy infantry, longbowmen, bladesmiths, you know, armorers, huntsmen, grooms, like the people who are doing all the, you know, this is a little city where yep. they're taking care of all of the needs of the army. Yep. And, you know, uh, 
the text offers a very boiled down um, text structure um, to pay for all of these people, you know, mm-hmm. over a month. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, then the section on henchmen is super timely. It's mm-hmm. super, super timely because in Tasha's College and Everything, what do we have, Sam? We have sidekicks. We have sidekicks. And this is like exactly the advice that you're going to get on sidekicks. Like mm-hmm. just, it's just line by line. Everything about this applies to sidekicks um, perfectly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they could have named sidekicks henchmen. Yep. It's the same. It's the same thing. Yep. Absolutely. It is. Right. Uh, so where a hireling is literally somebody that you hire could be a day laborer, could be somebody that you hire uh, on a mercenary basis, but the person is not your friend. They're your employee. The henchman plays a dual role. They are probably your friend in some way. They are more of an equal to you in some way. And however, they also kind of are your employee a little bit sort of depending on how the game goes, right? <laughs> Which is exactly what a, a, a sidekick is. Yep. Um, and, and I like the sort of handling of okay, so who runs this in combat? Who handles the role play? Mm-hmm. This suggests mm-hmm. th- this sort of assumes the player will role play the henchman with the DM stepping in in case that relationship turns kind of implausible. Right. You mean like uh, the person ordering the. Uh, henchmen to yeah. do things that are directly against their best interest. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you want what? <laughs> um, Come on, Brandis. You know, that never happened. Um, <laughs> do I know that? <laughs> I think, I think maybe I don't know that. <laughs> I think, you know, it happened every single time. Every time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. There was actually a third ed game I was in. Where I had um, I had a sidekick, um, mm-hmm. I, I came in playing a cleric, and the party was uh, like my my stats were astoundingly horrible, and the party was low on <laughs> uh, melee brutes, and so I had a uh, a soldier who was also my responsibility to play in combat, and uh, between the two of us, we were about as effective as one PC. It was rough. It was rough. <laughs> it was rough. Um, <laughs> That's painful. <laughs> yeah, my stats are real bad. I don't know what to tell you. Um, so, um, I mean, that that was the campaign that kind of put me off of randomly rolled stats for a little while, um, and got me yeah. on. You know what? Maybe maybe arrays or uh, point buys are good, and you know that trauma has since faded and I've uh, come back around to, okay, you just need a safety net of, of stat blocks that can also apply. It's fine. Right. Um, Yeah. I think there's room for both types of character creation. You know, I think I, I, I personally like rolling. I know it's not for everybody. I know it has problems, (laughs) you know, yeah, we've had really good effects from rolling uh, along with a safety net. The safety net comes from 4th Ed. Um, mm-hmm. There's a place in 4th Ed where uh, 
it offers like 11 different arrays, maybe mm-hmm. 10, 10 or 11 different arrays. And so I just turned that into a 2D6 like table, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. my players roll 2D6, and that gives them a number. That number is a particular array. So it's still randomized, but mm-hmm. and like 46 drop lowest is reasonably likely to give you something better than that array, but not worlds better. And kind of no one cares. Like as long as you can do at least a certain amount of okay, um, mm-hmm. you don't really notice the rest. Yeah, and 46 drop the lowest can still give you a six. <laughs> but that is accurate. Um, whereas uh, yeah. that array will not give you a six. Yeah, I mean. In yeah. in my wife's campaign, there's absolutely a bard with a strength of four. Nice. It's improbable yeah. on forty six drop lowest, but here we are. Yeah, but you know, hey, you know, s- snake eyes are a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then we uh, go to titles, offices, and positions. I love this. It's great. Yep. Me too. Uh, for all oh, the same reasons, also, I've loved everything else we've covered so far tonight, right? Right. Yeah. And there's also a table with some European um, titles. There's a table with some Oriental titles. There's a table with religious titles. I love those kinds of things. Yep. Uh, the Knights um, Militant I especially like. Um, yep. Because this is sort of one of my first introductions to, so what are the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospital like? Well, mm-hmm. here's what they call themselves. Oh, that's right. quite instructive. Yes, thank you. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, the thing is, like, in an organization like that, the title matters. Yeah. You know? And, in fact, in lots of uh, organizations, titles matter. And if you – you might think not. You might you might not agree with that. But I think it matters if you're the pope. I think it matters if you're a standard bearer. Right. I think it matters if you're the president of the college I work at. That 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 matters, right? Oh, like for I, sure. Those t- titles matter, and so titles can matter in your game too, as long as they match the theme and they're not offensive. <laughs> I, I not only agree with that. Um, there's a thing in Byzantine history where um, the nobles of court had to really like jockey against each other to get sort of the the best titles and precedents in imperial processions mm-hmm. uh, for each new cycle. I don't know if a term was one year or two or whatever, but right. um, like they would pay all this money, uh, which would some of this some of which would then be paid back to them in stipends, uh, or otherwise use their political influence to get these positions. And I mean, I love that. That's that's great mm-hmm. like, gaming fodder. Because uh, what a great way to get your PCs attached to, you know, the august personage of the emperor. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, yeah. <laughs> and it would have, it would have all survived just fine, except that um, the nearby uh, hostile emperor, uh, empire of Arabs um, suddenly collapsed. Just just suddenly fell over in a span of about 30 years. Anyway, guys, I listened to a lot of history of Byzantium. Um, this has been your Byzantium facts uh, update. Thank you. Very good. Um, so moving on. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I don't want to tell you the, the Dublin doubles are doing the thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, I, yeah, it's the thing is it's fascinating, right? Like I, I love that. I love stuff like that. Yeah. 
you know, I'm I, I'm totally listening to the you know History of Rome podcast. Uh, the, the Mike and, Duncan uh, one. Yeah, he's so good. It's, it's, so it's good. awesome. You know, I love. I'm I'm a history geek. You know. Yeah, man. Um, and 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 and, and hey, here's the thing. The reason I'm a history geek is because of D and D. It's D and D's fault because yeah. of this stuff. Learn from because watching I, you, Zeb. Learn from watching you. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, I wanted to know. Well, how come a viscount is you know two steps lower than a marquis? And right. you know, w- what does that even mean in practice? Right? Do they have different? Do they get? Do they get called different things? You know, why is the king or queen your highness? Like, what is you know, like and like just crap like that, which was for some reason imminently fascinating. Oh sure, and uh, and I love it. Uh, I, so. uh, actually, the one thing I wish that the I wish table six six had included well six 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 through sixty eight. Um, I really wish that. Um, they included titles of address, you know, uh, highness, majesty, eminence, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so on. Right. Yeah. Uh, that would have been yeah. really, really nice, just as a immediately useful at the table kind of detail. Uh, yeah, there's a great. So, if there was one thing that Gary Gygax was good at, it was taking the things that someone might find obscure, for example, pole arms, and doing things like spelling it out in painstaking detail and giving the specific name for each one and, you know, that sort of thing. And there's a great book that he wrote um, that has, he wrote this uh, Gygax, Gary Gygax's uh, world building or what, what did they actually call it? It's like a, it it was a series of seven books and um, it has, uh, it has a whole bunch of different uh, different kind of hel- helpful books. And, and one of the books has that exact thing. It has the titles, and then it has, here's how you would address this person. And that is such an integral part of courtly behavior. I think we talked about this last time even, that that actually makes a huge difference. In real life, that made a huge difference in the court. Mm-hmm. Because if you refer to someone as the incorrect address, oh you weren't recognizing their title, and that was highly, highly offensive. And depending on your own position, your own stature, could actually be punishable by criminal law. Good times. Yeah, yeah, so good. <laughs> hey, um, y- you were not advised to enter my dad's courtroom and call him something other than your honor. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so after uh, table 68 religious titles, there's a, a very nice table of NPC spell costs, um, which we covered in ways to make PCs spend money. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, it's it's very nice all the same. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I just want to point out enchant an item, 20,000 gold plus other spells. Okay. Standing. Moving along. <laughs> Um, yeah. Uh, and then there's uh, there's a, like a whole section on personality, yep. personality and loyalty and such. And that's th- this is actually a section that's really closely uh, mirrored in the fifth ed DMG. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, exactly. That's where I was. That's where I was headed. It's it's nice to see. Um, a, a, it's a little bit 
um, I guess it's thesaurus time. Um, <laughs> uh, because of the general trait table? Did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I'm getting at. Like, you look at courage, and it's kind of um, brave and fearless, and okay. Uh, like, one of those is an intensifier of the other, but. Uh... Well, like, quiet is laconic, and secretive is on the list, too. Okay, well, um, I guess if I didn't know what laconic meant. <laughs> Which I didn't uh, at twelve, I, I assure you. So, yeah, and 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 me neither, right? That's probably, um, you know, uh, miserly, covetous, avaricious, thrifty, hard, hard-hearted. I mean, so he- here's what they're trying to do: they have these general traits: argumentative, arrogant, capricious, careless, pessimistic, quiet, sober. And in each of these, there is a set of five specific traits that go with them. So you roll a d twenty to get the general trait because you're basically rolling to get something that's going to differentiate this NPC from everybody else. You can either roll a D 20 and get one of the general traits, or you can roll a D 100 and get a specific trait that is nested inside the general trait. Or you, or you could roll the D 20 to get the general trait. And then you could roll any other die that you can split into five equal parts to get one of the five that's related to the general trait. I mean, it's, it's fine. It's yeah. I mean, it's whatever. The interesting thing about it is what it's trying to do. And what it's trying to do is give you one very quick way to show that that PC has a personality and everybody is not just a cardboard cutout. Yeah. Um, Some of them are not so easy to do though. Right. How do you, you know, how do you show, um, Okay, you can show absent-minded pretty easily, right? What were we saying? Right, exactly. See, told you. How do you? What's the difference between being pleasant and being kind-hearted? Uh, How do you show the difference between those? Well, so, so I have an answer for that, but it it would take a lot of scene work to actually get that out on camera to show that mm-hmm. someone was. So the difference between someone just being nice and doing kindness, right? right? Do their actions right. back this up? Well, Lord, that is th- that. That's a storyline to try to get out, right? In front right. of the in front of the characters, right. but which is which is what I'm getting at. The, which is the problem with this table, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, at the t- I don't don't get me wrong. I like the table. I actually think that it's a really good thing to be able to just quickly roll. And, you know, I mean, if the look, everybody has had it happen where you just have a throwaway NPC, you don't even have a name picked out, right? And the party is just in a store or something. And it turns out they end up really wanting to talk to that person and really wanting to, you know, and so now you suddenly have to create a persona for this person. Yep. And if you're not prepared for that, this table is a great place to, um, to, to figure that out, or at least point you in the right direction, maybe give you some, you know, creative juices. Um, let's see. So there's a few more pages on quick NPCs. Um, it's good advice. It's very, this works as well now as it did then, because it's just, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. It, it's very much improv 101. Like how much character do I need to make this scene happen? Well, do that. Right. And be ready to improvise new bits into place. Yeah. 
And pro- probably the most important part of this chapter is the very last two paragraphs, which are the 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 tip to do your homework before and after game sessions. Yep. I have right. I have always regretted the time I have not been able to give a campaign in, in mm-hmm. terms of just that level of maintenance. Um, right. It really is one of the things that sets critical role apart. Mm-hmm. Matt's just reams and reams of prep work that have gone into gone into characters and establishing characters. Right. That then we'll get to chapter 13 vision and light i have very little i want to say about this overall uh which is usually the lead into a 20 minute digression um i also don't have very much to say about this i I am Uh, delighted by the massive uh optional infravision sidebar that that i think is great for just, well, okay, what if your players insist on being more scientific about their improvision? Mm-hmm. You what? <laughs> yeah. And it's a mess. Right. And that's fine. I mean, you know, whatever. It's that, that has been, it's a thing, right? Yep. Um, and, and I do want to say that the standard improvision model, um, where, it allows characters to see in the dark. Nothing more is said about how this works. It simply works. Uh, mm-hmm. Is what I think people uh, get wrong in Fifth Ed Dark Vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really, really easy to forget what it actually says and just treat it as yeah, you can see fine in in the dark. Yeah. Oh, in Fifth Edition, you don't you see, see as dim light. Right. In right. dim light, you have right. a disadvantage to perception. Right, right. And you, you don't see color. Right. You see as well as a person would in dim light, the right. the dim light around a torch. Not actually very well is the answer. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Uh, you yeah. can say you can't see color, but if you've ever like tried to read in dim light, like actually dim light of, you know, uh, between 21 and 40 feet from a torch, uh, you know that we're talking about, uh, you probably can't read that, actually. That light is yeah. probably not enough to, re- enough to read by, which now we're getting into something more practical in terms right. of well, what, the party needing a torch. Yeah. Well, the, So for me, the reason that I am saying the thing about color is if you can't see color, it's a lot easier for something to hide from you. Oh, yeah. Because everything is shadows. Yep. Everything is shades of gray. And even if you have some amount of higher acuity night vision, it's not as good as vision in bright light. Human beings who have vision in bright light, the reason you see color and high acuity is because the light is bright. Yep. Anyway, about that 20-minute digression. <laughs> Um, You're talking to a biologist. Yeah, Don't bring yeah, yeah. up vision. <laughs> no, no, it's. It, I mean, it, it's cones and rods, and and I get that, right? Yeah. Um, and but that's why. But see that this is why the answer that you're talking about with standard infravision is the right answer, right? Or is is the easiest to implement because it doesn't have to be based on real biology. It's a fantasy world. Well, so so the reason that I like five uh, E's dark vision 
and really starting to think about it as you can see as well as you can in dim light is just light sources still have a point. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Uh, the yeah. human carrying the light source is not just a failure of stealth mm-hmm. for, for the rest of the party, which yeah. it otherwise is. Right. Um, so this is probably one of the best reasons to use a virtual tabletop. Mm. Because when you have something like roll 20 and you set up the lighting, the person, the, the person's token that has the torch, the light goes with them. And if they, if they run 20 feet to f- attack the thing that they saw and everybody else is left behind, their screens go dark. They can no longer see. Well, so, so my problem with that is that that's not actually how light sources work in the dark. <laughs> like you, you can't see the ground in front of you, but you saw it enough to know where to walk. But that's not how a UI works, right? Your screen is right. dark enough that you can't see where to move your token. That's, that's actually sort of a problem. Uh, like I've, I've followed someone in the dark with a light source before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, the idea is the same though, right? That you're, if you're in dim light, you can see a little bit, but not that great. And if you're in bright light, you can see very well. But if you're not, you can't see. Yes, you can see a point of light, but you can't see what's in between you. So, so yes, it's just that the amount of light you actually need to cross fairly flat ground is is the you know what not important it's not important <laughs> well so i i get where you're going look to to activate the rods it's a very small amount of light very very small amount of photons that need to, are needed to activate those so if there's the least amount of light anywhere yes you'll see a little bit but you're not necessarily on a flat piece of ground. I mean, if you're outside in Rhyme of the Frost Maiden while there's a blizzard going on and the person holding the torch runs away from you, you're f- well, well, sure. It's just that that's, that's not about the, the torch anymore. That's about the blizzard. <laughs> it's sure. About, it's about yeah. the heavily obscured condition. Of course. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so we said we were going to get off on a tangent. Let's move on. So chapter uh, 13 is fine. It's yeah, fine. It's fine. Um, it's it's not necessarily necessary. <laughs> uh, well, the, the, the section on invisibility, it's hard to write succinct invisibility rules, and they sort of yeah. succeed here. Um, this is a, a fight I've had to fight more than once in, in terms of just how do you even write these so that they are cogent? And the answer is good luck. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um and there's there's perfectly functional rules here, but yeah, sure, it's anyway. fine. Um, so chapter fourteen is time and movement. It, it's it's an interesting uh, kind of flow of play chapter, mm-hmm. uh, especially for larger spans of time uh, for like, overland movement. Um, and it does have some advice to give around. Hey, remember to do this if you want your campaign to seem realistic. Pay attention to your calendar. I'm I'm recalling the um, statement in bold that you read from the first edition oh, DMG yeah. when we talked about timekeeping. Yep. And it went something like this. You can't have a campaign if you don't keep time. Yeah. 
except with more passive voice, right? Because guy guys, right? Um, yes, yeah. But right, this this is this is good stuff. Um, this is also where we just care about downtime in this book. Uh, time as a game balancer is the section that wants to talk about downtime. Um, preparing a calendar. The example of play here. Uh, <laughs> wants to talk is about totally downtime. hilarious. <laughs> yeah. It's been summer ever since my character started playing. <laughs> right. And <laughs> that, that's a tough thing in games to like get players to engage with weather, not yeah. just as a condition on their play, mm-hmm. but the way that people would actually engage with it. Like we have a big overland journey to, to take, but there's no special time constraint. We're going to wait until it stops raining because we don't live in the modern world where you can be insulated from that. It's instead travel is actually dangerous in the rain. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and there's also an element of like this thing specifically with this example, with the summer, you know, uh, there's an element of, if it doesn't matter what season it is, if it's, if it's not having any effect on anything that you're doing, whether it's because it's just not, doesn't matter or because the DM just is, didn't think about it or it doesn't care about it or whatever. Like nothing, the reason doesn't matter if it is not something that's important in your campaign, then it's just not important. So the, 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 the example of play where the person says, you know, it's been summer ever since my character started playing like, okay, but like, what difference does that make right now? Yeah. I, I, on the other hand, I know that every DM wants to think of themselves as someone who presents a living world. Sure. Right. Where, right. where seasons come and go, time passes, the player's legend grows, you know, all of this has meaning and richness. Uh, sure. Sure. I'm not disagreeing with any of that. What What I'm saying is that I, I've had very few campaigns where they didn't ask for this, they being the players at some point didn't ask what month is it? What time of day is it? At least every second or third session. Right. Yep. Yep. So like, so uh, part of me is like this example is kind of like, really, (laughs) you know, yeah. Um, but part of me is like, but if it's a new DM and a new set of players, I could see this happening. And the answer to, to it is, well, okay, let's fix it right now. But I'm not going to sit here with you all staring at me, spending two hours to make a new calendar. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Which is why every setting has, uh, you know, that chapter up front where they try to their calendar and their funky month mm-hmm. names that right. <laughs> you're going to have to translate for the players every time mm-hmm. you use them in play. Yeah. Um, and then you're just going to have to get used to it when they say Thursday and Monday and all that is the day names. Right. And September and October and, you know, yeah. <laughs> what can you do? I don't have a lot I want to say about mounted overland movement or care of animals or vehicles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's it, it's, it's very practical stuff for the – Maybe fairly common, maybe 
more rare situation where you need to figure out how long something actually takes rather than uh, time passes. It's like two weeks anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. But although this, this section did teach me the difference between a Bactrian camel and a dromedary. Well, thank heavens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, do, do you like two humps and you cannot lie? I like two humps and I cannot lie. All right. You other camels can't deny. Yep. <laughs> yep. Oh boy. Anyway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't have a lot to say. About your this. humps, your humps, your lovely camel humps. <laughs> My humps bring all the boys to the yard. Yep. <laughs> uh, I mean, in your, in your setting, Wednesday can at least still be called hump day. That's right. Yes. <laughs> but it's a thing about camels in this case. <laughs> oh Lord. Whew. Okay. Yep. Fine. <laughs> um, terrain, terrain and movement. Ter- terrain and movement. That's uh, again, I don't have a lot I want to say in a, in a practical sense here. Like these, these values are sort of, uh, giving you good reasons not to go to those places because <laughs> um, it costs eight times as much to travel through heavy jungle as through um, uh, untraveled plains or grasslands and 16 times as much as through clear farmland. Yep, you got me. We're not going there. Or mm-hmm. we have no choice but to go there because that's where the adventure is. But it's definitely one of those. Right. Um, and once again... You know, if this is not actually, you know, are you going to do a montage? Okay, you've been traveling for two weeks. You went from the plains to the mountains to the, you know, the badlands. Yep. Yeah, making like um, landscape porn overland journeys really mm-hmm. uh, fun to play out is not a skill that tabletop has mastered. Um. And really, film only gets it because of wide-angle lenses. And, mm-hmm. I mean, right. we appreciate the life work of Peter Jackson, frankly. <laughs> I mean, I, so I, I do have a small quibble with what you just said. Not about the Peter Jackson, but about... So there is a use for this if you're hex-crawling. Oh, for sure. I, I'm not saying there's any use for it, right? I just don't have a lot to say about it. Like, But there, I mean, my, my point is just... Yeah, if you're montaging your travel mostly anyway, you're like rolling an encounter check once a day or once a week or something. Like, who cares what the movement cost is? You're going to calculate that as a mathematical equation and tell them how long they were traveling anyway. Yeah, that's totally right. Fair. And whereas if you're hex crawling, it it makes a difference. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, there was a thread about hex crawling the other day that got me thinking about that again, just as a model of play that I have not. Mm-hmm. actually experienced mm-hmm. well again it's uh you know in the more modern iterations of the game it's something that is harder to accomplish in a way that mimics the old style way of doing it yeah um and just as just like you know mega dungeons are not necessarily for everyone well hex crawl isn't necessarily for everyone yeah there there was a lot of talk about the wilderness kit um and yeah. it, it comes with a hex sheet and no real guidance on how to use it. A suggestion for what you can do with it in one sentence. 
Um, and I think the thing I said to you was that the, the interesting part is if they just added two or three more sentences, they could fully explain what the purpose of having that hex screen in the, in that kit would be, and it would be fine. Nobody would be able to bitch about it. Um, but I think that I think part of the problem is people want there are there's a certain contingent of people that want fifth edition to really be old school, and old school includes for for those people hex crawling and yep. mega dungeons. Yep. And it turns out fifth edition is not as old school as it can purport to be, and that's not a derogatory statement. It's a neutral statement from me. Um, it's just not good at it unless you do it exactly right. It's just not. It's not the game set up to hex crawl in. It's not the game set up really to mega dungeon in. So you have to make concessions to make it work, and then therefore that takes it away from the the you know the ideal or whatever. So anyway, uh, ship types. <laughs> yeah. Th- th- so this section is very much uh, just like. Ghosts of Salt Martian Seas of Adari to me. Yep. Um, like most of this doesn't appear in the uh, the, the core rules of Fifth Ed, um, mm-hmm. and the, the things this bothers to talk about are sometimes a little bit odd, but it's okay. Um, they're basically fine. Um, yeah, it's it's funny because the tables make it feel like it's going to be extremely detailed, and then it gets like a half a page of text. Yeah. Um, um, so it feels. I guess it gets a page and a half, but, but still, it but feels like, like the the tables may give it more gravitas than the text gives it. Uh, this uh, makes me like really appreciate the rules around crew interactions that the center of the people. In Ghost of Saltmarsh, I thought mm-hmm. that was a really nice bit in mm-hmm. Ghost of Saltmarsh. Yeah. Um, yep, and like it's really hard to um, make something really engaging around ship movement. We did everything we could in uh, our naval combat rules through tribality, mm-hmm. but um, it's hard yeah. because like. Even if you have uh, two awesome ship minis on the table, it's still hard. Yep, yep. Uh, because round by round combat is not how real life works. Right. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. Um. Then there's rules on aerial com- aerial movement. We had you know pages and pages on aerial combat earlier. This is aerial movement mm-hmm. uh, and getting lost. Uh, I always, but like th- this table stuck with me a lot. Um, just sort of, uh, lost and hopelessly lost as separate mm-hmm. ideas. Um, right. and kind of feeling like this is a section I would really want to avoid having to use as a DM. I think I couldn't have phrased it at the time, but I think I had some awareness of my players are not going to thank me if this comes up. Yeah. I think they will not say to themselves, boy, this was a cool section of the adventure where we were hopelessly lost. Right. And it's yeah. not that it can't be a cool section of the adventure, but making it dice driven is um, probably going to be a sore point. 
for I mean, once again, players and for my players at the time yeah. as we were kids. Yeah. And, but once again, this is a, this is definitely a hex crawl thing, right? You know, this is, this is part of how you're adjudicating how you get lost or hopelessly lost or how you get found or how you find your way. Um, right. And if you're, if you're structuring a hex crawl around basically randomized, you know, if you get lost, it's random which direction you end up pointing yourself in. Well, that's random. And so this just elaborates on that based on, you know, the conditions and situation and all that. I mean, it's, it's fine to me. I don't, uh, you know. Yeah. I mean, the issue is if you think about the supporting fiction of cinema, uh, mm-hmm. I think that situations where the characters are hopelessly lost are also pretty hard to make all that engaging. Sure. Sure. Uh, because all those trees look the same on screen. Right. Right. But the, so the thing is like, it's what happens while you're hopelessly lost that, that begin that gets focused on right to make that scene interesting or important. Right. Right. And so, um, and so my, my takeaway there is to have it affect the random encounter table more than like be a big table of modifiers on chance to get hopelessly lost. That, that's Oh, sure. Right. Well, and so here's the thing though, if you were actually running this like a hex crawl, this this is not separate from that. Right? Yeah. All yeah. all of that's uh, integrated. It's I, just that here, so the problem is that this this book has a problem of trying to present elements of a hex crawl type style of game, but also trying to balance that with the more cinematic way that you could play the game. And so the hex crawl stuff kind of gets separated and it's not necessarily connected. And if you're not used to thinking in those terms of with that structure, then it just feels separate and not useful. Yeah. I think it's, in other words, a presentation issue, not, not so much, uh, Oh, it's just a bad rule or it's not not a valuable table. It's just that where it's at in the text is not, very informative. Yeah, it just it really meant that teenage me uh, bounced off this a bit and mm-hmm. was sort of mm-hmm. uh, stymied by how to make that an engaging thing. And you know, your points about how to handle it are good. Uh, and man, my my thirteen year old self is gonna love your time machine. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I wish. I wish I had a time machine. Um, because the thing is, yeah. Well, no, anyway, I don't want to go. What we have instead is a time constraint because it's now yeah. time for chapter fifteen. Yes, yes, it is. Um, so D O. Um, oh, dealing with us. Okay, so uh, yes, DM's miscellany. Okay, so listening. Eh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot more nuanced into listening rules. Yeah. Uh, than the hear noise bits of the thief class are going to mm-hmm. give you, and. It's it chance to hear noise by race, and it's just this is bad. I don't like this. Yeah, I just because but because it needs to shift to being a, a real skill system at this point. This this is mm-hmm. the moment where it sort of f- falls into dubious functionality and could maybe stand to be a real skill system. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah. But also, chance to hear noise by race was not going to get implemented well in published adventures. Uh, right. There were too many like uh, room keys that were you hear this noise over there when. Right. Well, yeah. that's better actually. Yeah. For for the players' engagement, but. Right. How yeah, do you no, apply this yeah. in an adventure is, is really the, the trick. Yeah. Um, doors, every adventurer's bane. Uh, mm-hmm. More uh, adventurers stymied by doors than monsters. <laughs> um, I do appreciate that it addresses concealed and secret doors. Yep, that's pretty nice. You know, whatever. Uh, lycanthropy. Okay. Uh, yeah, you're going to probably need these rules at some point, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but considering they were on like page one of the first edition DMG, um, fair or whatever, like I think it's okay if they're on you know page 110 or whatever. <laughs> um, um, planes of existence, interesting, yeah. Uh, oh, oh, I always really like this one. Uh, this section always really appealed to me because it just sort of trots out a bunch of different possible campaign settings. Mm-hmm. Um, there's and a lot of them really appeal to me because okay, late medieval Italy, yes, sign me up all day, please. <laughs> uh, I mean, Rabbit and I went to uh, Venice and Rome for our honeymoon, so mm-hmm. oh yeah, wow. yeah, nice. I'm into this content. Um, yeah. <laughs> then uh, one set in a world similar to the Far East. Yep, okay, I mm-hmm. I love a good Asian campaign. Yep. I played a really great Romance of the Three Kingdoms campaign in college. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's see. Uh, Ancient Egypt and the Ancient Hedge of Egypt, Age. Yep. I'm, um, I'm there. I'm there for that. that. That's some good Conan content. Uh, yeah. So it's a fun time. The campaign in underground world dominated by dwarves. Uh, I mean, fun. Uh, we, other than the orcs, because ours isn't about orcs. I was going to say, if you just drop off the last half of that sentence. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Seeds of Adari straight up did that. that that's yeah. a thing in our setting. Um, yeah. Nice. Then, then you have Ravenloft. Good. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yep. Mm-hmm. Truly fantastic world filled with Jane-driven steam engines, elemental airships, and uh, spell-driven telegraphs. Eberron. Uh-huh. Uh, yep. Campaign set in a tropical uh, archipelago or travels by a canoe between islands of cannibals, giant beasts, and, lo- and lost civilizations. Moana. Mm-hmm. I'd play that. I have a friend who's running uh, it, that right now. Yeah, good. Yeah, it's 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 also just um, the Isle of Dread in yeah, a chain yeah. of islands that's the whole world. Yep. Um, I have a, a, a good friend who's running exactly that campaign. Uh, that's nice. Yeah. Uh, campaign world set in Africa at the height of its great empires. That's Nyambe. Okay. Yeah. That mm-hmm. was that's, not entirely showered yeah. in glory when it came out, but uh, I'm glad yeah. I tried it. Yeah. And I think it's something that we should keep trying to do. Um, I think if if it was done now, it would be a hell of a lot better. Like to think so, um, yeah. and a campaign based on the works of a particular author, such as Sir Thomas Mallory's *Le Mort d'Arthur* or the, sag- the *Sagas of Iceland*. Well, so so this is th- th- that's a nice note because they are going to wind up releasing some of these as um, the historical reference greenbacks in mm-hmm. uh, in second right. head, but yep. also yep. that's just Pendragon guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, go for it. It's great. <laughs> yeah, like. I wouldn't use D and D for it, but but Fenrir can. 
Yeah. Uh, then we actually get to the planes, uh, though it's very light touch. Like yeah. the entire guide to the planes is less than a page here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get one paragraph in the prime material plane planes for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because they haven't yet. Well, because the, the spell jammer idea, right. That, that hasn't yet been well thought of, but, but uh, the, it's, it, they have to say that because they're referencing all these bullet points from the last little yeah. segment. Right. Uh, because basically uh, all of these bullet points with the, you know, all the list of the, campaign settings that you just described all of those are different planes of of existence they're different prime materials sure so so they have to refer to them in the plural right um and and i actually the reason i like this bullet list is that it basically says you can do whatever the hell you want with your campaign and it's still D. yep um and then ethereal Inner planes, astral, outer planes, and a, a list of the outer planes. Um, mm-hmm. We're we're basically name checking the Great Wheel of Cosmology without any real depth to it. Sure, and then we have a picture. Does your version have a picture of it? No, mine has uh, an image of the wheel with uh, Sigil, the tower that uh, the the tower that leads up to where Sigil would be moving yep. around. Yep. Uh, and then it's pointing at all of the, you know, the abyss, pandemonium, limbo, Isgard, Arborea, Beastlands, right? That's much um, better. Because remember, I'm, I'm in the uh, the reprinted edition or whatever, the, the revised whatever. Right, for sure. So. Um, no, they, they didn't uh, lavish such treasures on, yeah. on this book. Yeah. Uh, Everything after that is appendices. Um, it is a lot of appendices, my, my mm-hmm. folks. Uh, it's mostly about treasure, magic items. Yeah, treasure tables, magic item tables. Uh, there's probably some dungeon dressing tables or something in here, if I recall correctly. Uh, maybe? Uh, magic maybe item not. descriptions. Nope, nope, it ends on intelligent weapons. It is, mm. it is magic items of one kind or another and uh, treasure tables. From here until the index. That's it. Okay. I I had forgotten that they did not include one of those. That is a loss. <laughs> it is. Uh, though not one that I would have recognized at the time. Because you don't know what you don't have. Right. Yep. Um, so I think that finishes this tome for us. Unless there's something you wanted to say about all the uh, glorious uh, stuff in the appendices. Uh. No, I, I think I can let this one go. Um, I think that you know, going through item by item won't be uh, worth anyone's time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I, I do know that when I was a kid, I had no idea what I was supposed to do with XP values attached to all these items. That was just <laughs> yeah. very. And we and we up. talked about that in the XP episode yeah. too. I think, yeah, because it was it's it's kind of a weird like yeah it's it's odd. It's it's really it feels very good. The the typeface they've chosen is very chill, and I, I like it. Um, text can be a little bit crowded on the page, uh, especially for, especially for some someone of your advancing years. 
but the art is quite good. Even the the blue ink line art is it's, it's yeah. ultimately quite good and attractive, and um, I'd say a little more consistent than some of the stuff in the later printing. Yeah, some of the stuff in here is very uh, not good. <laughs> some of it's great. I mean, you yeah. know, um, but yeah, no, I, I used to have the edition that you have and uh, I got rid of it because I don't play second edition anymore. And um, like, that's a reason. Come on. Yeah, I know. Well, but I'm trying to reduce my collection. Uh, and I probably should have just kept my DMG instead of getting rid of it. Cause, uh, I have a, the DMGs from a lot of editions. I don't play anymore. Um, a lot of different games that I don't play actually. Um, but yeah, so yeah, the re the reprinted one is, uh, you know, it's the green one that they did most recently. Um, it's a beautiful book. It's very well done. It's just, uh, I do like the original better. Yep. So, yep. so that, that brings us to the end. I, I think we're done. I think we finished the DMG for second edition, which means that we are, um, we are going to, uh, uh, in tomorrow's episode, we are going to hit the third edition DMG. That is going to be an exciting time. So Brandis, so Where Sam, can people find you on the internet. Yeah. So I hope that you'll come see me on Twitter at Brenda Stoddard. I write for tribality.com. Um, my personal blog is brandastoddard.com and my Patreon is Brenda Stoddard. I'd love to talk to anyone who enjoys this show. Yeah. Excellent. Me too. And I am Sam, and you can follow me on Twitter at DM Samuel and converse with me there. Or you can follow my work on RPGmusings.com. And uh, you can find me all over the Tome Show. And I think that's all. So uh, so wear your damn masks. There's still a pandemic going on. It's getting worse. It's, it's worse than ever, folks. Like, I, I don't really want us to be at... Uh, this just goes asymptotically high. No, we're 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 in the thick of it right now, and it's bad. So wear your mask. Wear your masks. Black Lives Matter. <laughs> <laughs>